this episode of the Big Sky Boneheads podcast. My name is Michael Gray. His name is Scott Hershey. And uh, excited for our guest, we are joined by Brian Massard. Did I get it right? Mustard? You got it. All Good right. morning. Mustard? <laughs> Not <Yeah>. mustard. <laughs> French There's mustard. mustard. There's yeah. no tea in it. Uh, and I hesitate to even give you a title, sir, because you run so many things. Uh, we you know, we came to know you uh, through your ranch business down in Dillon, Montana, uh, Reminis Angus. And then, lo and behold, afterwards, I had other people, after we talked, come up, well, you know he's got cigars, right? I'm like, well, I've got cigars, too. No, he has a company. I'm like, oh, you know he makes vodka, right? No! Wow. I didn't know any of this stuff. I, by the end of the day, I wanted to be adopted. Um <laughs> Because I was, I was going like, to say, the most so, interesting man in the world. Yeah, exactly. And he lives in Dillon, Montana. And who knew? Uh, how are you, man? Very good. Uh, very good. You've got a lot of irons in the fire. We appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm, we're up in Augusta shipping cattle this week. We're there for three days, and and uh, it's a perfect time to stop in and see you guys. All right. Well, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, where do you? Let's start with the. Let's start with the cattle ranching. Um, because I think, uh, due to something we talk about on this show far too often, uh, Yellowstone, everybody just assumes they know what being a ranch owner is like, and it's just hooking up with hot chicks in, uh, in cow feeders and, uh, then shooting people. Um, and I don't imagine that's what ranching is really like. It's a little different than that. I got lucky. I got lucky and hooked up with a hot chick though. So. Well, good. I mean, my if, wife's the best. Yeah. If you can't, man, it's uh, tough to deal with those cows. You got to have something at home. You do. You do. And ranch life is not Yellowstone at all. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it would sell, if people really know what, what ranch life is like, you mm -hmm. know. And I told my wife before we got married, I said, it all looks romantic from the outside. Right. But once you get in on it, and boy, that was the wrong thing to say to her. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still with me. But it is. I mean, there's, you know, the scenery, it was romantic. We were talking about that the other day. We're up here gathering cattle in Augusta. And my daughter's riding along. She goes, well, one thing we never have to pay for is the scenery. You know, and the sun's coming up, and and you can just see the, you know, the Rocky Mountain front right there. And, you know, we're all looking for bears. It's just barely daylight. And mm -hmm. bears had gotten into the back of the truck and tore open a bag of feed, you know, the night before. So you know they're right there. Right. And the place we're staying at up there, they had, we sent mineral up there for the cows and the bears had, they were right down there at their shop eating the molasses out of the mineral and stuff. And so the, the cows were all fuzzed up while we were there. So you just know they're, you know, they're there. And that's, that's, I, you know, it's, it's exciting to, it's exciting to talk about it. It's exciting to be there, but it's, it's very, it's very different than Yellowstone. It's not like we didn't, you know, the scene doesn't pop out where we come in. We just decide to look, the bears are in the mineral. We pop in our jet and go over there and shoot a couple of them. And, you know, <laughs> that's not ranch life. You just wonder is, you know, as you're gathering that herd of cows where the bears are, you know, are you going to find a dead calf? Are you going to, you know, when we shipped calves that had terror marks in their backs and stuff, you know, that we'll have to doctor. They're still alive and stuff going home. And that's the reality of ranch life is. Um, is a calf going to survive a bear? Is it going to survive a wolf attack? And if you get the calf saved, you get him doctored, is he going to get to market? You know, and eventually what's going to happen to him? It's those things. And who's going to repair the fence that 300 head of elk, you know, went through? You know, we I went to, to stop a gate yesterday, stop cattle from going through a gate, and I looked down the fence and there's 150 feet of fence just mowed over, laid down, you know, and that's just, that's just elk running back and forth. You know, you, you think of, you've seen the Christmas story, Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, you know when they speed up the music when the gang is chasing Ralph and right. everybody's <laughs> up and down. There. That's what we, that's what I think of all the time with the elk and the wolves going back and forth, just up and down across the fields and fences and stuff. Well, it, it, there is the romantic aspect. There is the scenery. There's all those things. And and you know, in Montana, most people I'm sure are familiar with that part of the ranching stuff. Every time I see ranching, and every time I talk to ranchers, and and there's a couple different kinds. You're either born into it, uh, and few choose it. And then I, all I see is just work and endless tasks. There's always something to do. And, uh, you know, being, being, being raised into that helps with that aspect of it. I can tell you, uh, not for me, but <laughs> love what you guys do completely. I uh, love it. But boy, th then that's kind of the thing is you got to be willing to, to love it in order to do all the things. Yeah, you do. I mean, like, just like my daughter said, you know, we don't have to pay for this. You don't have to pay for the scenery. So you know, the the elk run through the fence, the, the the film crew's not there while you're back there the next two, three days replacing the fence, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, or looking for 
cattle that are they're at the neighbor's place they're two fences down because you know they're gone and if you get them gathered up what's the price you know are you going to be able to pay the especially like this year you know talk about the you know you guys probably hear it and talk about it quite a bit the inflation yeah mm-hmm. um the inflation in the egg industry has just been astronomical i mean the, the cost going in the disruptions in the supply chains 90% of us who got into it weren't born into it or didn't marry into it, like you were saying. You know, that interest is going up on top of all your cost inputs going into this thing. And so the cost of cattle, you know, we're, these calves are bringing an average of 250 to 275 80 bucks a head more than they did a year ago. But the costs are right around 280 to 300 bucks a head more mm-hmm. going into it. So you don't, that, you know, you, you're wanting to break about every 10 years – Two to three years in a decade, ranchers will, the calf prices will go up high enough that uh, they can pay some bills over the last seven. Then you'll break even for two, three, four years, and then you'll you'll be losing money for two, three, four years out of a decade. That's just that's the cycle of a lot of industries too. And I think the reason we got into the big business, into the big business, the beef. Yeah, it is a big business, but the beef business is. I wanted to figure out those ebb and flows of the deal you know i've been involved in conversations about the packers for 30 years i got involved in stock growers 30 years ago and they were talking about the packer concentration then the stock growers actually started in 1884 over wolves packer concentration and cattle theft (laughs) today you know 140 years later we're talking about wolves and packer concentration and i guess i just kind of got I kind of got, you know, when I when I get in, when I hear something in a conversation, I really I I just like to vet it to the as far as I can. Is this real? Is it hearsay? Is it assumption? What's it based on? And so, listening to that side, it's pretty easy as a rancher, you know. Thirty years ago, before I got involved, I was sitting there thinking the whole cow was a ribeye too, worth thirteen ninety nine a pound, and <laughs> right. and I did the math and going, geez, you know these these guys are making five six thousand bucks per head profit you know, and we're losing money. And so, you know, as you get into the beef industry, you find out real fast, that's not the case. And so I've just kind of vetted that we got into the beef industry, I really wanted to know, you know, a how can we help our customers on a broader level? You know, we sell Angus registered Angus bulls, we've been doing that for 38 years. Then we started providing carcass data and feedlot data for our customers, we'd either buy their calves, partner with the feed yard, and we'd get the data back for them. And without data on your cattle, it's it's like not having a roadmap and you're going to a place. It's like going to Canada for the first time you've never been there. Where are you going? How do we get there? Which road do we take? Well, if you don't know how good your cattle are, you're no different than the 10 guys on each side of you saying, we got the best cattle in the world. Well, how do you know? Well, the next the next segments of those change down the road, yeah, the feeder and the packer, they don't share that information. And, you, you know, in the industry, if you find a gold nugget, you don't tell the guy next to you where you found it because then he's going to spend more money and you won't make as much money. And and that lack of transparency in business, in every business, really sets up barriers and hurdles for people to get around. And it sets up challenges. And then it also sets up these assumptions that we talk about. And so we just tried to be transparent we wanted to create a measurable difference in our in our Angus bulls long before we got into the meat business. We wanted to tell people if our cattle were better, here's how you can measure that and find out for yourself. And then we kind of got into, we really had the mindset of how do we empower our customers to do better? We don't ever want to control them. We don't ever want to say you have to buy your bulls from us. And this is why we just say, if you buy your bulls from us, you can expect these things. And so... When we started empowering people, our customer base started growing. Our loyalty from our customers really started growing because they were like, wow, I can do anything I want now. I can sell over here. I can sell amongst 10,000 other producers, and I have something I can hand the buyer that's different than what they're seeing anywhere else. And that really grew until we kind of hit a glass ceiling, and here's where the cigars and vodka come in. We had gotten... We had gotten into the vodka business, then we got into the cigar business, and it was in those other two businesses, just worlds, I mean, a whole other world away from the beef business, the ranching business, where you're fixing that fence Mm -hmm. that the elk ran through. 
did we discover the consumer? And the consumer is like, how do we get, how would we get meat from a ranch in Montana? How do we, you guys, you know, they were just in shock that they had met an actual rancher, not a, not a Yellowstone actor that's, you know, there's a lot of hedge fund guys, a lot of hedge fund people, a lot of multimillionaires. Aaron Andrews was recently on a podcast talking about the ranch they own in Montana oh. with her hockey playing husband. <laughs> she, he plays for the NHL. She's on Fox Sports all fall. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, we've got a ranch in Montana. Oh, do you? Well, or they got just, land. Or just a large chunk of acreage. Yeah. yeah. You know, how much ranching are you doing, Aaron? Big and, difference. Yeah, a little bit. And so that's, you know, we we reached out and we touched the consumer. The touch, we found the consumer and they were just like, how do we pull this through the system? Because up until that point, you know, you, you hang your... You hang your cattle, your carcasses on the on the grid at a, at a big packing house, and they pay you according to how good it is. And then we felt good about that for 20 years, but then where's the meat going? And, you know, we find out a lot of our stuff gets exported to Japan, uh, different countries, high-end restaurants, it's all going, but we have no clue where that goes. Packer's not going to tell us where that's going. And the only way to find out is... You get in the business and you sell it to somebody and you develop your brand, develop a, a loyalty, same thing as we did in our bull business. And so that's what we're in the middle of today. Sounds like something that would rattle a few cages. With the, the there, If there's an established order and how these things are getting done, these packing houses are in charge of where your beef goes. So that means they can charge a premium for the folks over in Tokyo. But if you get involved, it sounds like something that would upset the apple cart for a handful of folks. Uh, yeah, we're so small. I mean, we're so small. We're like a, we're like a cell on a human. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they, they, they don't balk too much at us, but they do control. We have found since we've gotten this business that the way they take you out is the same as the vodka business. Um, they will right now, if we want to sell to a distributor, we want to sell to a local grocery store, even our local, a lot of local grocery stores, vans here, town and country. When I go into, when I hand them my price list and I hand them my cut sheet, which is all the same cuts they can get from any major packer, they, they show me their price sheet and say, if you're not at this price, we're not going to buy from you. We'll buy a very small amount from you. So they will, they get their prices down. Those four big packers are all fighting with each other right now. Anyway, all the time. And it's, it's human nature. You want to get the best you can, sell it. The buyer wants to buy it as cheap as they can. And so these specialty, these these small branded deals like us, you've got, it's easy to sell the steaks. Anybody can sell a steak to anybody. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. But you've got two ends of the cow that aren't on the barbecue grill every weekend, and that's the challenge. And so we knew that getting into the beef business, that you got to sell the chucks and rounds. Uh, you've got to sell all the trim. And so we really concentrated on the chucks and rounds and not the middle meats because the middle meats will always find a home. But there's a lot of pressure right now on the ends because there's a lot of, there's a lot of drought. You know, there's a 20-state drought area that has affected a lot of cattle. So you get a lot of cattle that aren't finished come in on the, the market for trim, which goes into burgers. Mm-hmm. Well, they'll, there's so much pressure that that's starting to move into the ends. The ends are starting. So to... We had a, a customer in Chicago that was taking two-thirds of our, our monthly production, and he called us first September and said, I'm out of the market for 60 days minimum. There's so much so much meat, lean meat on the market right now. We don't. We can't even afford to pay your guys' stuff. So then you've got two-thirds of our production you got to find a home with pretty quick because leaving it in the freezer, the difference between being in the cattle business and being in the meat business is there's some similarities there there's some parallels there you're paying for cooler storage or you're paying for feed if you don't like the market but cattle market you can kind of dance around that for 16 months if you want to buy extra feed and you want to um play the market see if it'll get a little bit better you can you can dance around that for about 16 months and you still have a live animal you can trade and it still has time to go do something in the meat business you know, once it goes through the packing house, it's a perishable item. And you have to keep it at a certain temperature or you have to freeze it. Clock's ticking. Clock's mm-hmm. ticking. And once you put it in the freezer, then then your your discount's going way down. doesn't matter what the market is. And so 
the goal in the meat deal is you got to keep it in the cooler and get it out of the cooler and turn that every month. It sounds like uh, there's a lot of parallels between what you're doing uh, to to these these bigger these these people are sending straight to the packers. It sounds like um like a craft brewery. It's uh, and you're competing for shelf space mm-hmm. with with uh, with bigger uh, producers who have a lot more power to pressure you out of that shelf space. And that's what happens when craft breweries are competing against InBev and uh, and they're just trying to find a way to get their product on the shelves. That sounds like there's a lot of parallels there. A lot. And in every business, take the take the brewery business, take the spirits business, take the cigar business. It's, it's all shelf space. And you should by rights, and I, I think I've been told, I know maybe this is why I'm in business, but uh, every business I've got in, even starting in the cattle business, I've been told, don't do this. You can't do this. Unless you have an arsenal or a safe full of money, don't do it. There's so much risk. And I think for me, my passion is I live in a free country. And it's like I'm not entitled to be in business, but I, I just take that as a personal responsibility. If you want to do something, it's your responsibility to go do it. It's your privilege to go do it because it's, it's one of the last places in the world we can go do what we want to do. And we're not entitled to win. We're not entitled to be successful, but we are entitled in America to enter the race. And I've always taken that challenge on. It's like, well, I'll take, you know, I can borrow money. I can take risk. And if I make a really super good product, eventually I will get there. And so mm-hmm. that's this kind of the line I take is everything that we jump into. Look at your guys' deal. Look, you know, you start a radio show. If you don't have good content, you run the risk of, okay, it's over. And then what are you going to do? You know, we're all going to sell hot dogs if we fail. You know, you got <laughs> you got to have a backup plan. But you guys, you know, I don't know your history, but you've, you've taken a risk to start a show like this and, and make it a really – a really popular show. I mean, I hear nothing but good things about what you guys are doing here, and that's that's a risk to do. No, as radio host, go, I make a really good bartender. <laughs> <laughs> I don't make a really good anything. Uh. Well, and I wanted to ask about that because, you know, it sounds like there is a universal kind of tie for all of the things you're doing. And I thought it was going back to, you know, my original statement, like, oh, yeah, no, I got to know this guy named Brian. Brian is a rancher. He raises cattle. I'm like, well, you know Brian has a cigar company. No, I didn't. Well, you know he has a vodka. That doesn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> how are the, but know, I like I, those three things. I, I was going to say it. I was waiting for the – he also uh, has his own greeting card line. Like, <laughs> But it sounds like there is a universal kind of spirit that you – or, or a muse, or some, I don't know how you'd want to phrase it, that you're chasing with each of these endeavors. It's entrepreneurial as much as it is specific to the product. There's a way to get the product exactly as you want it to be. And that seems to be the thing that ties these three things together. I want this to be really, really good. Yes, and I would. I, I go back to my childhood. I've, I'm a perfectionist. I call myself a recovering perfectionist now, but I've been told that that doesn't happen. But when I was a little kid, my mom and parents and, and grandparents stuff, oh, you're such a little perfectionist. Oh, just, just, you know, life's not that way. And you have to, I, I learned in the cattle business, when you start in the cattle business, and I was 10, 1978, had to borrow 400 bucks as a 10-year-old to get in the cattle business. That's how bad I wanted to be in the cattle business. You have to do it well because you've got to pay somebody back. Plus, you got to pay the interest back. And so if you fail, you you have failed. And so you you really have to learn all the aspects of the business, and you have to do it well. Because, you know, if you're, if you're born into it or you have a big bag full of money in the back, you can kind of wade through mistakes a whole lot different than if, if you're borrowing at all. If it goes wrong, then you you got to, you know, kick that debt out. You've got to pay it back somebody sometime. Mm-hmm. You've got to get it paid back. And so I really... You know, I used to really think, you know, I don't want to be a perfectionist. Geez, that's a bad. I thought that was a bad thing to have as a kid, you know, growing up and having those things. But I've learned as an adult starting these businesses, I want it. If I, if I like it, I'll, you know, I'll go for it. Sure. I didn't just want to be in the cigar business to have my name on the band. I didn't just want to be in the vodka business to be in the vodka business. I'm not in the beef business just so I can run around and, and uh, say, hey, I'm in the meat business and tell people and take pictures of it, you know, on social media. I love, love cattle. 
love them. I mean, since my earliest memories is, you know, the shape of their ears, their, their, the whole body, you know, it'll, I can see a cow out there in our cow herd two, 300 yards away. And I can tell you exactly which one it is, how many calves she's had. Casey can tell you this too. We can, I can see a bull in his field and not see the number and tell you when he bought him, what he paid for him, that kind of stuff. That's just something that I had as a kid. And so when we, that's how I, I treat my cow herd. And we've been smoking cigars since we were in high school and I really like cigars. And so when I got into the cigar business, I just happened to meet somebody that made cigars and I happened to ask him, can you make me one? And he said, sure. And as we went through that process, it took us two years to come up with my cigar and his blender, the guy that made him for me was ready to pull his hair out and my hair when he got, <laughs> when he got done with it. But he, we're very, very good friends right now because of it, because he really understood how much I loved a cigar and how much I wanted my cigar win, lose, or fail, this is what I wanted. And, you know, we lucked out after two years. It was the lucky 13th blend that <laughs> he came up with, and it's been rated 91 to 93 points by eight reviewers, international reviewers. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's that's what it's all about, business, is set a goal. This is where I want to go. The consumer will tell you if they like it or not or if you have to change a little bit. But you have to start with something you love, and it has, and it has to be good. You know, especially if you don't, if you're borrowing money to get into a business, it better sure. be good. Yeah, and you're competing. You're competing, yeah. Yeah, yeah with uh, Southern Wine and Spirits, when you're competing with those guys, <laughs> it better be good. You you mentioned something, and I think this is fascinating because, you know, um, in Montana, we grow up seeing cattle all the time. You know, and and yeah, we 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 all know they're delicious. Uh, but as animals, and as and as, as driving by them, you know, the big dorfy looking cattle and you're like get them out of the road and you you moo at them as you go by i've talked to other other ranchers other other beef producers who have that connection to them and it's and it's fascinating to me because to love cattle i i think that aspect of it is lost by a lot of consumers like how can you love something so much how do you claim this connection and of course these are going to be slaughtered and, and put out on these grocery shelves but that connection is something i think that that is really really interesting to people to understand and how that can be with with you and that particular animal which we all take for granted yeah that is an interesting part and i i actually that's getting more and more to what you just said you know how people say how can you be connected to this animal how can you tell me you love this animal when you know it's going to be food and actually when you when i say i you know i love this animal you're respecting your food you have to respect where it comes from. You have to respect every development because it's here as food. You know, cows aren't just walking around the streets. They don't. I mean, they're not. Right. They're not people. They're no, here. they wouldn't last long without the protection of ranchers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think about how wily the things that you hunt are, uh, and yeah. you, you know, and it's the same thing as a hunter. You respect your quarry. Yeah. You know, elk are beautiful. They're equally delicious. But but um, cattle are beautiful, but, and I've mentioned, you know, I have a yeah. friend of mine who's the same way. He just loves them. And and to, it, to see that, and now and to see it in multiple people, you start to understand it a little bit, and you look at them differently. I look at them differently because of people like you have told me that, and I'm like, oh, they're pretty cool. You know, but we've taken them for granted our whole life just driving by them. Well, and you you learn it's, a, it's, a, it's like a family love. Because when you're, you know, you look at a cow standing out there in the field and she's got her calf there. Well, we go and we tag that calf and identify that calf. It's a little, whole lot different when a cow has a calf and you got to go in right after she has it within 24 hours and you have to tag it and you give it a shot and you weigh it and you identify it. That's a little different than when your wife goes in and has a baby and the doctors are there and they weigh it and they measure it and they take all those things. There's a, there's a little under, I mean, there's a, those cows are pretty protective, and so you remember, you remember the ones that don't like you. You, you, <laughs> you know, have to. You have. They'll to. kick you across the stall. Yeah. Speaking from experience, <laughs> when they don't like you enough, they'll put the boots to you. Yeah. So you develop that relationship with those things, and then you know how good, how good you know an average cow is in the herd for six, seven years. It's it's a lot lower than that, but ours is in there that long, and so they have six or seven. Let's say they have six or seven calves. You remember how good is each calf? What did that calf end up doing? Was he a little one? Was he a big one? You know, you kind of build this relationship with them. You know, they they become a family, and you're in charge of their nutrition. You're in charge of their health. 
you got you have to take care of them and like you said it's seven days a week mm-hmm. that you're you're there and you're with them it's just like family and so you know it's it can be a love-hate relationship you spend more time with them than you do your family oh you do a lot more <laughs> yeah <laughs> like so, a lot more yeah but they all look alike <laughs> so mostly <laughs> every black angus looks like every other black angus to me but to you it's completely different and most of the people in my family look alike too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're not all as fun to be around as the cows um yeah because you do i mean it is you know i i get that question a fair bit from people like well how how much is yellowstone like like real life you know because I, I grew up raising animals and steers and lambs for 4-h and stuff and you get into this one's better than that one, and you start to look at them a little bit differently because you know this one got more money at the auction. Well, why? And what what makes that lineage better than this lineage? And um, you know, I tell people that all the time. They're like, "Well, how real is that show?" Like when they have an eleven hour episode that's all one guy on the dumb end of a post hole digger from dawn until dusk. That's a real episode of a day at the ranch. Yeah, when you're just out there <laughs> cussing about every decision you've ever made in life as you dig another post hole through rocky terrain. <laughs> Call me when they do that episode, and I'll tell you that one's authentic. Because you're out there that much time, you know. And, the, and when the cows dictate your schedule, they drop a cow. It's February at two thirty in the morning. They don't care that you're tired. No, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's time to go. Time. Yeah, and you know that's. I think that's something. If people understood what goes into any level of of agribusiness, and I don't care what you're whether you're raising feed and just trying to make sure you can bale enough hay or whatever it is. Uh, I think there's a there's a real disconnect between what you guys do, what it does to to your entire life, revolves around these animals mm-hmm. and all of their needs, going from when they're slimy and brand new and they got baby deer legs, all the way through their they're being shipped out to market. Yeah, yeah. There's they become your family, and then your fa- your family becomes part of the the ranch. That's that's the one the one neat thing that we get to do is your kids have to go with you. Oh, it's free help. It's mm-hmm. free help. You know, our, <laughs> our, our, one of our sons, our middle son that's with us now, he spends the most time with us now. You'd he, be boned quite a bit. You had free labor. You wouldn't have been able to do any of this without all of us. I said, we were all free labor. <laughs> I said, I see you eyeballing your kids different today. <laughs> well, that was the, the farmer I worked for, Balen Hay, as a kid, he, Gordon McKay. He was one of six. They, they kept having kids because yeah. they kept having cows. I mean, they, they had that whole farm operation. And then, uh, and then Gordy didn't find a wife soon enough in life and started hunting down the neighbor kids, and I happened to be one of them. I, I think <laughs> that's how I ended up working on the farm. Even before Yellowstone, I think there was a lot of uh, public perception uh, that, that people don't realize about ranches or get it completely wrong about ranchers. And, and I think um, that that show has just made it worse. But, uh, you know, most of, what, most of what I've learned about ranching and uh, is mostly through a couple of friends who have, who have agriculture backgrounds. Um, and most of it, though, comes through being out there. And, and, and to me, it comes as a hunter. But when you start to learn and respect what actually is happening out there, you have a whole different perspective on, on the way, even looking at the, the beef in the, in, the, in the grocery store, uh, you get a whole different perspective on it once you start to see the operations. Because when you're walking up to <laughs> interrupt a rancher's day to ask a, a favor, to ask permission to hunt, to ask to something, and that person has much more important things to do it does change your perspective about what you're driving past every single day in this state and and i think like i said i think that that perception problem you know was long before yellowstone happened and and i think uh, it's it's good the more eyes you open through things like this on the podcast yeah uh, that's very important what you what you were sharing we're so far removed from let's just say we're so far removed from our food today we just you know in the I want to say when I first got involved in stock growers, one of the conversations here in Helena was, was, you know, they interviewed a bunch of grade school kids, and I think it was in Helena or Butte or somewhere, and they asked them where their milk came from and where their meat and cheese came from, and they all said it comes from the store. Mm-hmm. Right. And these were fifth these were fifth grade kids. In Montana. In Montana. Not Chicago or no. Boston or Tampa Bay. Yeah, that was a real eye-opener of, and, you know, today, you know, look at all the regulations. I'm listening to the Farm Network coming down, and California's coming out with an initiative that they want to tell people all across, farmers all across the country, how they can raise their hogs. They won't even raise them in California. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of things they don't do, they do different in California, but they want to dictate that policy. Well, when it comes down to food, when you get people that have 
little to no understanding about food, about the ranch, like you guys are talking about. They, they can in no way be shaping policy about how they get their food because that's the quickest way to to strangle your food supply. How important does that make it for people like you that do know that end of the business to be involved in the policy then? Oh, very important. That's how I got involved in stock growers. For, heck, I've been involved in stock growers for 30, to 30 years this year, and it's very important. Ranchers are pretty reclusive. You guys probably know. I mean, I am. I mean, I was, I was called a perfectionist as a kid, but also very, very introverted, very introverted. They were like, we got to get this, you know, drag this kid out and say, when someone asks you how you're doing today, say something besides fine. <laughs> right. And I learned, you know, back then, we, if we don't share our message with people, if we don't share the reality of agriculture and food and nutrition to people, we can't expect people who aren't involved in that industry to understand it. And we can't expect the media to share that because that doesn't sell negative stuff will sell so it's very important it's very important and one one person can make a difference one voice can can make a difference and you can't sit at home as a rancher and a farmer and complain about everything and then expect things to get better it's your responsibility to step up and share that share that message there's so many i'm so excited now that i got into beef business you know stock growers had asked for 30 years they wanted ranchers to go stand in front of a meat case and talk about how good beef was and I was there saying, absolutely not. You know, I couldn't come up with a reason of, I can, I'm not going to go into a store anyway and talk to people I don't know. Then as we got into the meat business, you know, five years ago, I started realizing, you know, we've got to communicate with people that don't know us. And we've got to convince them why they should buy beef. And it was, at first, it was just, come on, it's the best protein option you got. It tastes better and rah, rah, you know, rah, rah, the steak deal. Mm-hmm. And today I'm more concerned about, you know, you talked about the cow out there that you're driving by, Scott, and she's standing out there. Now I just see a, a carbon-free factory out there that's converting vitamin A into retinol so that we can use it. There's a carbon-free factory out there that's making vitamin B that you can't get through plant sources. There's That, that carbon-free factory is eating what nothing else can eat and turning it into edible protein for humans. And it's the best tasting. I can now go back and fall on. It's the best tasting protein. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. home run protein to go get. But everything else you get from that animal that's just standing out there looking at you, chewing their cud, pooping on the road, and you're going, oh, there's a smelly cow. But what that factory is doing for all of us, it clothes us. There's, a, there's over 500 things that come off a cow that we use every single day. She's just out there doing it. It's amazing. And the scrutiny that they come over, I mean... The other thing is, you know, carbon neutral. Everybody thinks all you hear for the last decade since this whole uh, emissions and methane thing. The farts. farts yeah. Cow farts. Yeah. They're just out there farting all the time. Cow it's ruining everything. And yeah. burps. And it's all brand new. So it's new methane going into the atmosphere. Well, nobody talks about that group that wants to get rid of cows, and they've been after them for a long time. Nobody talks about that all that methane is carbon that the plants have already pulled back down out of the atmosphere and made grass out of it so it's a cycle it's it's nothing new but that message isn't getting out there that's because the people who are fighting you or doing this anti-cow and and war on beef is what we've called it on occasion those people have nothing but the public to give information to they don't they don't have this is their mission so while you guys are out there working and doing all these things we're talking about 24 hours a day, they're doing the misinformation campaign, and that's what they have. And so you at some point have to respond to that, and that's what I've seen the beef industry doing with uh, with public service things and with getting information out and being a lot more vocal about actually replying to that information or misinformation with, the, with what you're talking about right now. And I think it's really important. Well, it is, and, and we have got to get better, and we've been talking about it for 40 years at playing offense we're a great defense we will bend 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 and let them come down to the one yard line and stop them at the one yard line but you know i just assume play out on the 50 yard line back and forth a little bit we've got to do better things like this you've got to get out there you've got to share that message you've got to make people feel good about buying beef the big fat lie you mean the the whole cholesterol thing the whole saturated fat thing has been a lie since the 50s i've investigated that but i wouldn't have had that information before i got in the beef business and learned Mm -hmm. about it 
No, and that's that's an amazing one. I'm having this conversation with my kids. My kids are uh, uh, 11 and 14, and you know they, they want to know about all the things. You know, nutrition. I was having that conversation with my son yesterday. He's like, okay, well, talk to me about what's what's new. You know, I'm like, it's all the same stuff that it was when we were in caves. You need good sources of protein. You need vegetables. Like, and if you go around, you know, it's the old deal. If you go around the outside of your supermarket, you'll find food. If you go to the inside of the supermarket, you'll find product. If it comes in a bag or a box, that's not food. The food is on the outside. That's where the deli is. It's where the produce is. It's where all of those things are. Those are the things that should make up most of what you're eating right there. And and the idea that the, the cholesterol thing, the fat thing, when sugar was the demon the entire time, but there were many, many dollars behind you know, whether or not that story could be told, and we leaned in another direction. Um, you know, it's it's amazing what what information does to things as basic as the food chain. Because it hasn't changed. Since, no. we, since we stood on two legs and started walking around, hairless apes that we are, it, the, 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 the necessities to keep this machine running, the, the human being, hasn't really changed. But the information around it changes weekly sometimes. Well, that's a good point. I've never heard the supermarket described that way. Mm-hmm. But your food is on the outside. outside. Of the, it's on the outside. Yep. And ends with the beer aisle, by the way. I was going to say, yeah. 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 the beer. It's on the outside, too. It's in a cooler. <laughs> but it, it, we've been told through marketing that it's the outside of the food aisle is the most expensive. You go, look, you go price per ounce what's on the inside of the right. food aisle, mm-hmm. and it costs more. So all the, all the vegetable oils that your body doesn't even know what to do with are very expensive. Uh, all the condiments that you put on a on a sandwich, all that is very expensive. I, I like going to the grocery store and I price all the lunch meat. It's forty one point three cents per ounce on average. The meat, the best meat, including New York steaks, sirloins, and ribeyes, is forty one point seven cents mm. per ounce. Right. But yet, all the marketing says it's really expensive. You got the Let's, shiny package. You got all the colors. You yeah. got the pretty labels. All of that stuff. Yeah, we're we're selling the best protein on the planet for the same price as lunch meat. That's just floating in, floating in stuff. It's all been cooked out. It's all been mixed up, and then go buy a bag of potato chips, and you know you're headed down. Yeah, yeah. If it's got a mascot, it's not food. No, it's if there's not. a cheetah on it, those aren't cheetah chips. <laughs> you know they're not they better not be well, that, that's your introduction into type 2 diabetes just start here with the cheetah eat a bag of these a day right. and then we'll move you over to insulin yeah and and that's no you know that's no joke i think that's uh one of the things about uh, living here in montana that I, I, I take a bit of pride in is is hunting you know for that same reason i know where that thing came from because yeah. i processed it myself i bought a grinder i've got the bags it went straight into the freezer within you know a day of of falling on a mountainside somewhere, and and that's it. This is this is what we're eating, and I don't have to worry about where it came from. I don't have to tell myself a story to get over what the reality between that animal being a living, breathing thing and finding its way onto my table. I don't have to lie to myself about what may have happened in route. Yeah, because you because you you know so many times you don't know. Even if you are interested, it can be hard to find out. And you know, I think that. Having a having a conduit to that information is important, but Scott's point is a perfect one. The people that are invested in fighting this thing have no post holes to dig. There's no fence to fix. There's no finding a trailer to get those animals on. They don't have a day job. This is what they're doing. They wake up every day, and this is what they're doing. Well, they're not they're not interested in empowering people. They want to control them. You can control the human diet a whole lot more without cows around if you're growing it if you're growing it in a plant or you're growing it in a lab right you can control what people eat a whole lot more than empowering them to eat what they want to i think that there's some good news here in the fact that uh, you know they found out um fake meat doesn't work uh there's some they're 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 kind of pulling back on trying to sell those uh, fast food places have learned that people don't buy it uh and so some of those that some of those companies are are now they're not. They're not being successful. They're, they're just not selling the product. People don't want it. And then, in uh, the other aspect is, especially in this state, you now, uh, the education part of it is still alive. My, I will proudly tell you that my uh, my daughter is the newest um, education teacher in uh, in Lewis and Clark County. She's a brand new uh, 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 egg teacher at at uh, East Holland High School. And so there are still those 
some places in this state, some places in this country still have agriculture classes. And uh, she wanted to do it out of passion. We didn't grow up on a ranch, and she, she didn't grow up on a ranch. She, she got into FFA and fell in love with it on 4-H, and she's uh, now doing it as a career. So there are still some of those young people out there, especially in Montana, who are, who are going to champion and who are going to carry it on. That's pretty important. It's very important. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things going on in Montana schools that, you know, I didn't think would ever come to the Montana school. So that's, that's very good news. You know, we got to keep egg alive. We got to keep that message alive for sure. Well, and that, that's a question I have for you. Cause I remember as a kid growing up, uh, in farm country, raising animals. One of the things I heard two things growing up religiously, don't you ever take a job at the factory? Because I grew up in Southeast Michigan and everybody got a job for General Motors when you're 18, 30 years later, you're crippled, you retire. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from the local farmers, they're like, don't try. Don't even, don't try to get into ag. You're going to lose your ass. Um, there's no future in this. We're struggling. We're scuffling to get by. And so I had people telling, I had nobody to guide me like, oh, you know what? You should try. They were telling me what not to do. Um, and you realize all these years later, I've, I've come to realize like, what if I'd have stuck with that? What if I would have used that little piece of land that my mom had and actually done something with it? Maybe it could have developed into something because, you know, I, I've never, I help out with a, there's a local rancher here does branding day every spring. I go out and help just for fun, just to be around the animals. Mm -hmm. It's a nostalgia piece for me, but I have no skin in the game. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like if there aren't enough calves that year, eh, I go home. <laughs> right. uh, you know, meanwhile, he's trying to figure out how to pay the bills. How, how do you go about informing young people that this is an industry it's worth pursuing that it can be a passion play that it can be profitable and that it's a good way to go because it's a lot of work man and that that scares uh, every year we go by that scares more and more people off it does and i heard this you know I, I think i shared right when we sat down you know our parents you know fervently tried to get us off same message you got get out of here yeah do go be a doctor go be a lawyer go make money if you want to come back and play in it you know, go do that. And I just couldn't walk away long enough to do that. Now, growing up, and you, I know you guys know people like this. In the 80s, we saw, in the 80s, it really kind of, on the, in the egg deal, in the ranch deal, farming and ranching, really good, solid employees walking away and into government jobs because it was safer. They had a guaranteed, they got insurance. They had a guaranteed paycheck. Pensions. All the stuff. Every two weeks where, you know, a lot of time in the 80s, we hadn't even heard of, what do you mean? I mean, we didn't, we didn't start paying our employees. We were a pretty young business. In 2000, it was a shock to, okay, if you want somebody good to work here every two weeks. You know, a lot of times, go back 50, 60 years ago, maybe not even that far, you know, people got paid in the fall. People got paid in the spring, employees and stuff. And so there was that thing of, we've got, you've got to go away from agriculture to make money. And what I want to get into, you guys know, is a there's no there's there's no certainty in agriculture, um, and there's a couple points going here. But you've really got to bet on yourself. You do. You have to bet on yourself. You have to absolutely love doing it, and that's what I want to segue into. Is you guys know people that have gone and taken one of those jobs? I have heard people my entire adult life complain about their job they complain about what they're doing but i got the health insurance or i got retirement or i get a pretty good paycheck but they complain about there's that negative undertone for 30 years mm -hmm. and then i don't know how many people that have lived that life and retired and they're dead two weeks after they retire two yep. months after they retire or they're old and tired and bitter and they you know, they say, well, I'm retired. I'm finally going to enjoy my life. It's like, what'd you do for 30 years? You don't I get would, a minute of it back. Go, yeah, go enjoy your life. Take the, you know, America was not great, but was not built on safety. I mean, safety is okay, but risk is, risk is for yours to take and the reward is for yours to have. You know, if you're doing it, and I would, telling young people, I've, I've told young people since we got in the, vodka business the cigar business the just being in the ranching business and now the, the beef business go and do what you want to do do not do what everyone else thinks you ought to do do not do something just because it's smart you know we, our whole society today is if you're making money you're smart it's good to make money it's important to make money that doesn't mean it's smart 
That just means you know how to make money. Well, you know, any Neanderthal can go out and make money. Yeah. Ten years from now, check in with all of those ladies on OnlyFans. <laughs> about, about how they feel in their 40s when somebody Googles them. Yeah. I mean, you that's the message. Go and do what you want to do. You'll, you'll be healthier. You'll be happier. And you will live a better life and you will have fewer regrets if you do what you want to do. And there is... Don't wait for a bag full of money. Do not wait for it to be easy because you're, you know, you could wake up when you're 40 and go, dang it, I can't go back and do it again. Right. You don't get a minute of it back. No. no not, not not a minute. And, and, and Brian, Brian, you know, not only talks the talk, he obviously walks the walk when you're talking about guys, yeah. not only in beef, but in um, cigars and vodka. Like, <laughs> you're talking about doing things that you're interested in, doing things that you like, uh, doing things that you believe in. Uh, so, you know, we do want to talk a little bit about these other things because how, how could it not be interesting to anybody that you've got cigars and vodka in uh, a ranch in Montana that all tie together somehow? So how did those other two things get into your world? Uh, well, I think they got into my world by what I just got done saying, go and do what you want to do. So we had, it's, it's, gosh, it's, you know, as a kid, you, you heard growing up, get away from here. I heard yeah. from this, get away from here. You know, we, if you don't own it when you start, you know, it is an uphill climb. You don't, how many times have you heard you can't buy land and you can't buy egg land in, in Montana? Right. So if you don't own it and you're leasing it and you're borrowing money from the bank, what are you doing? You know, are you insane or can you like it that much? Or are you just, you know, you're off the charts. And my wife and I had leased um, well, we changed our, we changed our, our, our thinking, you know, in 2010, you know, we were just in 2011. We had, again, we had built a, not only are we a rancher, but we own a feedlot. My parents had a feedlot when, you know, in 1968, I bought it from them with a couple partners in 1996. And then when all the environmental regulations came in, shut the feedlot down, we had to decide, do we want to quit go sell hot dogs, try to make a living? Or are we going to borrow a bunch of money and go build a new feedlot? So we went and we built another feedlot. And we still, we were leasing, you know, I've leased places for 35 years, leased different ranches. You know, we used to joke about our cows are just gypsies. You know, they'd just get on a truck and go anywhere. <laughs> and they were happy just to find feed. And, but we had, we had changed our thinking. You know, you, you can't say go and do what you want to do if you don't believe that you're eventually going to get there in the end. And we were getting, you know, we were getting overwhelmed with, geez, are you ever going to get there? You know, I don't know how many conversations my wife and I had is, what are we doing? You know, my wife was just like, if we were going to work this hard, pay these leases, we fix all the fences, we do all the work, and then they come back the next year and they want to charge you more. They've leased it to somebody else because it's such a nice place, all the work you've put into it. Hmm. Why are we, you know, why are we going to do this? And just about had given up on doing it anymore you know getting up there the kids are out of high school and stuff and you know you want to work that hard and we got we got an opportunity to buy a ranch and we got an opportunity to buy from people that have been in the ranch and business you know their whole lives and we got that we got that opportunity and so i i share that story with how do we get into the cigar business how do we get into the you know the vodka business well we had decided that we weren't going to drink the Kool-Aid. We weren't going to believe that you'll never have a ranch because we decided that we were. So this is 10 years before we got a ranch. We just, But for the first time in our adult life, we had to stop believing those childhood things of you can't make it. This is hard. Go away. You know, and you're in the business. We've been in at that point. We've been in the business for 30 years. And it's like, OK, we have to believe you can't make it. We need to do something different or we have to stop today and start believing we are going to have something at the end of this race. And the day we changed that focus is the day that, I mean, I'm not kidding you, every door, every door in our world opened up. And it was just changing our thinking. Subconsciously, if you decide you're going to make it, you are going to make it. You don't know what the road is going to look like, and there's a lot of curves in it. It's not a straight shine. It's just not a straight shot. It's not a bullet there, but you are going to get there because you've once you've decided you're going to get there, you get there. So... We had decided we were going to have a ranch. How are we going to come up with money to buy a ranch in Montana? We, we didn't know, but we had decided we were going to have one. So our son was in the Special Forces. He's in the Montana National Guard and on a six-man, the chemical unit. And he was in Djibouti, Africa in 2012. And it's a, it's a fun story to tell. He calls me up when he's over there. A couple of fun stories is he's, they were tearing down cell phones and picking up 
you know, all the cell phones from would-be um, terrorists coming into the into our country. And I was like, well, I'm so glad you don't know where I am right now. And he said, I could come to within 50 feet where you are right now. And he was in Africa. You know? I was like, well. You're wearing, gig- you're wearing a green shirt, smartass. <laughs> yeah. The gig's up. So that's the, the funny story. The first one, he says, look, I can get mom over here on a gorilla trek. You know, send her over here, get her all, all her shots, and I'll take her out. So she goes over there. She's on this trek for a week. I went back into our closet, into two gun boxes we had, and went back and read every letter we'd written to each other before we got married, while we were married, and just was like, okay, who were we? What are we today? Do I still think those things? What what she say to me? Is she, you know, and just interested. Stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning, two nights in a row. Read every letter we'd ever written to each other. And the next morning, gorgeous vodka comes to me, as clear as we're sitting here. I'm having a cigar and a cup of coffee, and gorgeous vodka comes to me. And, you know, the rest is history. It, it came that night, but I was just in shock of why would I be thinking of gorgeous vodka? That's kind of odd. <laughs> and now I, I had celiac disease my whole life, 1971. So I've been gluten. I haven't been gluten free, but I've been on struggling with that since 1971 when they found it. So I have always been pursuing potato vodka. You know, we buy it every, that's all I buy every, you know, I just like it. Potato vodka is just so much better than any other vodka. There's no aftertaste. There's no burn to it. It costs more money to make potato vodka. Um, and so I was like, well, okay, I've been buying potato vodka for 10 years. Gorgeous vodka comes to me. I just read all those letters. We want to buy a ranch. Check my bank account. No, I'm not doing anything. That's, <laughs> didn't come from there. <laughs> <laughs> in the cow business still so, nothing still nothing nothing in there but even with nothing in there like i said the road is full of curves we went for it told my wife about it when she got back and of course she was just ecstatic that i had read all those letters and she was you know that was what she was interested in and so it kind of laid there kind of laid there in my mind for a couple of months and then the exact shape of our bottle which I need to get you guys one. I agree. So you guys see it. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, and you'll appreciate this when I bring you a bottle. The exact shape of our bottle today came to me when we were we were working in our office, and I, I told my wife, I said, get in here and draw this thing. I've, I've got a shape of a bottle. What's, what is going on with this vodka deal? So our oldest daughter was an artist. She, she scri- I got the original scribble that I did that night, which is pretty bad. It's not the original. It's not the shape of our bottle, but our daughter did a great job in it. Got it all designed on a computer, and we sat down, and I said, we got to do something with this. I, this is just coming at me, you know, right at us. So we did it, and we made made a batch, and we turned it in, and we got a you know, it took us two years to come up with that batch, too, because, again, just like the cigars. Can't turn it around overnight. No, you can't turn it around overnight, and I, we didn't just want to be in the vodka business. We had no idea about the vodka business, no idea what it took to be in the vodka. We had no idea about Southern Wine and Spirits and, you know, the big distributors, which are no different than the big packers, which are no different than the big uh, cigar guys. Um, but we got into it, and so at, at that point, when we were visiting with our distiller— I said it has to have, this has got to be the best, smoothest vodka I've ever had. I'm not just in the vodka business. So, you know, two years later, we get there. We make it. They're making vodka for them, and they're making vodka for us, and our start starts out selling theirs, and they're like, it's time for you to go somewhere else. So, you know, we moved over to another dis, uh, distillery that, you know, shared our story and what we wanted to do, and they made a fantastic vodka. We turned that in, and... We've got five international gold medals on it, on our vodka. Mm. I mean, it's 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 that good. And I, you will appreciate it. And so, through the vodka business, I had when I go check my cows, I drink. Here's how we got in the cigar business. I drink. I go to the gas station, fill it up. I go inside and I get two things of unsweetened iced tea and one thing of cranberry juice, and I mix it together. I light a cigar and off I go because it's 80 to 100 miles to check your cows. So you got a lot of road time to smoke a cigar and and have some tea, cranberry tea. So I made a cranberry tea flavored vodka just to sip on with your cigar. And there's still today no other cranberry tea flavored vodka in the world. We're the only ones that have made it. We've only made one batch 
And when we switch distilleries, our new distillery, we still haven't got that flavor down. So I have not made another batch of that. But when we first made that, I, my daughter was headed to California. She knew I loved cigars. She'd always stop at cigar shops and get me cigars. And I said, take this with you and take it into cigar shops. Find the owner and tell them I made this for them. And they'll laugh at you. But So she did that. We found a guy that made cigars. Actually, the guy that... Uh, that she ran into, made his own rum, had Wagyu cattle in Louisiana, <laughs> and made cigars. So you're not <laughs> so, the only one out there. No, it was a, it was a good yeah. fit. It was a kinship. Yeah. So she had told him about a place we leased and and how beautiful it is. And he, and he called me a year later and said, "I got to come up and find out if your daughter was BS me or if this place was really that that neat." So he comes up there and he spends four days with us. We're calving out there, and. So I asked him about the cigar business, and he says, you know, how do you get into it? I was quizzing him for a couple of days. I said, look, we give we give cigars away every year at our bull sale. It's just kind of a fun deal. I'd like to get my own made. Is there any way to make my own cigars? And, you know, he's sitting there thinking, oh, sure, we'll just, you know, we'll send you some, no problem, no big deal. <laughs> you put a little white band on them, you right. call them yours. And he had no idea what I was thinking right. when I asked him that. And... So he says, yeah, sure. He gets on the phone, and you can just hear his the guy I explained to you a little bit earlier. You can hear the blender back there. You know, he's holding his phone. He pulls his phone away from his ear. And what he was telling him is, no, <laughs> we do not make cigars for other people. I do not have time to make cigars for some rich a-hole cowboy that wants to be in the cigar business and wants his name on the band. No. And he, so they get done talking. I said, well, what would he say? He goes, yeah, I, I think we can do it. <laughs> so, and then I said, I said, well, how many do I got to make? And he said, 2,500. And, you know, at that point, you know, 2,500 cigars might as well have been 2.5 trillion. Right. Yeah. You know, I didn't know how I was going to get through that many in a lifetime. I didn't know enough people to get through that many. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Didn't know how. And so he calls this guy up. He sends us six cigars. And I smoked them. And I was just like, yeah. He called me up. He said, "Why? What do you think? You like them? Should I send them to you?" I said, "No, I didn't really like those." I said, "They just kind of taste like plain Dominican cigars. I just, I really like cigars. I mean, I really there's a certain I know what I'm looking for." Yeah, I said, "Monte Cristo number two is we got to get as close to that as we possibly can." And he said, "Well, I can't make that one for you." I said, "I know, but that's my profile." And so he goes, "All right." So he, six months later, I get six more cigars. And he calls me up. What do you think? I said, uh, they're a little better, but I didn't really like any of them either. And he said, look, I've been dealing with you for going <laughs> on a, a year and a half now. We don't make cigars for other people. My boss says, I have to make you a cigar. So you get down to the Dominican. You can have all the warehouses. You can pick any country. Get this thing made. I'll help you all I can. But it, it's got to end. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's resolve. You're it. driving let's, me nuts. Yeah, let's resolve this. So he goes, send me your, send me what you like for cigars. And I had been, like I said, data driven perfectionist. Um, I had kept a spreadsheet on cigars, just like I do cattle. I came up with my own traits before I was looking at cigar aficionado and looking at the burn and the draw and the ash. I'd came up with my own stuff, and I had a little one on there with stays lit with neglect. And so we would. We would uh, we'd be weighing cattle, and I have a cigar, and you know you, you you take a puff, you lay your cigar down, you go out and and uh, move things around, come back in. If it's still going good after 10, 15 minutes, it's a good cigar. So I hit the sort button on there, and my top five cigars all had a Nicaraguan Habano wrapper on them. I said, let's start. We've got to have that. That's got to be part of it. So we were down there. We came up with the Dominican Nicaraguan filler. Nicaraguan Habano wrapper on it, and that's the our Habano um, cattle baron cigar we have today. And they're good. I, they're, well, <laughs> they're very good because I, yeah. I smoke cigars as well. I'm not as educated about it as I'd like to be. I know what I like. Um, and over the years, I've I've been able to I've been in contact with some people that really really knew cigars, and you know you know you're in the right place when somebody asks you what kind of cigar you like. Eh, I don't really know. How do you drink your coffee? Mm -hmm. And they want to know some other things, and they can put together a profile for you. The amazing thing is throughout this conversation, we're an hour into this, by the way, mm -hmm. and that's how quick this goes when you're talking to Brian. Um, I'm 47 years old. I still don't have a good answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? But I know what one looks like if I had ever had the answer to that question and would be 
Brian Mustard. <laughs> yeah. Like this is a dude that figured it out in in practice as much as like the individual applications. It's a, it's a weird conversation as I'm listening to you because the individual applications, whether it's the cattle business, the meat business, the scar business, the vodka business, they're all tied together by by whatever it is that's driving you. Um, because that that's the same. It's the same. The the perfectionism, the knowing what you want to do and going and doing it. I I do have one other question. What's your support system look like? Because nobody that's driven like you're driven and has as much on their plate as, as you do can exist on an island. you got to have some people around you that, for lack of a better term, and I don't mean this, I mean this in a positive way, it's going to sound offensive, tolerate all of the shit you're doing. Because, I mean, once you're in, you're in. That's a good way to put it. You know, because um, <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I told my wife that I wanted to start a project today and two years later I'm still on the phone trying to, she's like, this isn't a project anymore. This is just, right. you know, this is an obsession that's not going anywhere. Um, what's that look like? Who's, who's in your tribe? Who's in your, who's in your house? Well, I told you my wife has big ovaries, so she's, <laughs> she's number one right? <laughs> to, put up, to put up with me in this. And uh, it's, that's a good way to put it. Who's willing to tolerate? you and i think the the best way to answer it is um you have to take care of the to the best of your ability take care of the people who are willing to tolerate you and the first thing i do the first thing i do is you, you i tell anybody that wants to get involved with me you do not have to do this and you're entering at your own risk right but once you walk through that door you're going to go 110 miles an hour and i don't want to hear how hard it is i don't want to hear how crazy it is i don't want to hear that we should quit this is because you don't have to be here. And so there is kind of a peripheral line with me. Once you cross that and say you're in, you're in. And, you know, I've had that, I had that conversation with my feeder this morning, just on there. The meat business is really super tight right now. I mean, it, it's upside down right now. And he's, he's sitting there like, he goes, you know, I'm a little nervous. This thing is really, this thing is really tight. This thing is really tight. Are you sure you want to keep doing this? He goes, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. And I said, well, you don't have any risk. I'm taking all the risk, so you have to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm paying the tab. Yeah. I'm, Get it done. Yeah, I'm paying the bills. And so he goes, I know. But so you have him. We have a 17-year relationship. When we were, I mean, I learned how to feed cattle. I learned about the, I didn't know any more about the cattle feeding business than I did the meat business. When we first started in 2005, I sent him. I partnered with him on another customer's cattle for the first time we fed cattle. And to me, that was like being in the meat business. You, you're feeding your cattle all the way through. I'm going to know I've taken that next level. What I'm going to learn from this is going to be fascinating to me. I don't care who else buys into it. I'm, you know, I'm going to learn from it. And will this help me? If this helps me, how can I help others? How can I help my customers? And so he has become, he's tolerated me. He's partnered with me on cattle for 17 years, and so you, you got to have a good you got to have a good feeder. You've got to have um, the packer. We've developed a relationship with our packer down there. That is that's a challenge. You know, he's I'm tolerating him. He's right. tolerating me. You know, but you learn a lot. Um, my family, they all get paid. They they're all free to go work other jobs. When things get tough, I just remind them. I said, "You can go somewhere else. You don't have to be a part of of this challenge." And so, I guess my family is is definitely right there. There's two two of our kids are there. They work for us, and and, and I'm very frustrating to the whole team. And like when we're working cattle. I don't want to be the guy on the shoot that's running it because the phone, you know, if the phone's ringing and I've learned just to not, I just get in the back and I can just bring them cattle. They can do all this stuff so you don't disrupt it. And if we're feeding, we have two feed trucks going around, you know, it, it really disrupts the crew when you're, when I'm on the phone. And so we've, I've had to, that was probably the biggest challenge is those tolerating me around it. I had to really not disrupt the system that I had built and I was the disruptor. So I had, <laughs> Tough to uninvolve and distance yourself a little bit. Yeah, I had to learn to be a manager. You know, I didn't really, I've never wanted an office job, and I've created an office job. Five office Several, five, several yeah, office five jobs. Five yeah. office jobs, but I like being out in the field. And you got to be really careful with that. When, you're, when you give strict instructions to your crew on how to manage their time and how to be efficient, and then you're out there right in the middle of it blowing that whole thing up. <laughs> That's not okay. Hey, remember that thing you asked me to do? I can't because you're in the way. Yeah. Um, well, um, Brian, it, it, 
can't thank you enough for taking the time out for us. Like I said, we're over an hour right now, wow. and, and I get the Sorry. sense. No, I get the sense <laughs> that you could keep going, and I yeah, could do this. I could do. I could do this for the rest of the day, and I definitely want you to come back because your story is evolving. And, yeah. and, and that's the other interesting thing is I assume by the next time I talk to you, you're like, yeah, and we started an aerospace division. I was going to say something else um, came to him. You yeah. know what comes to me, Brian? We're, Nothing. <laughs> Nothing comes to me. And you know what else shuts me down every time? I'm like, I don't know anything about that. So no. <laughs> Brian sees I don't know anything about that. He's like, well, then I'll spend four years in the lab until I've cooked it down to its essential parts and then I'll own it. Um, cannot thank you enough. We will include all of the links to Cattle Baron, to Reminisce, uh, to Gorgeous, all in the description of this thing. Uh, so that people can find you. Is there anywhere else that people can look look you up? And No, I don't think that's... I mean, just all their websites. That's how okay. they get a hold of us. Yeah. All right. all right. Well, we will include all of those in there. Um, it, 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 you, you're an interesting cat uh, for all the things you've got to hand in. And, and I think more than that, the um, the reason that you've got to hand in all of them. There's a there's a fearlessness to what you're doing. Um, that I think is to is to be admired and emulated and probably studied more than a little bit. Um, so thank you so wow. much for the time. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe to this thing. Find all of the links to all of the things that Brian's got going on. We'll add them as he adds companies to his portfolio. Uh, you can find that anywhere you find podcasts, and we will be back. We'll do this again next week.